The Old Testament reading for this, the third Sunday after the Epiphany, comes from the prophet Jonah, the third chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, all nations. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The epistle reading comes from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, the seventh chapter. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. And this is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel, which serves as the text for our sermon this morning, comes according to St. Mark, the first chapter. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting the net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And this is the gospel of our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Tomorrow, as you might know, is a grim anniversary. On January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States of America made a landmark decision that has had a tremendous impact on our country and our society as a whole. In a 7-2 decision, made, I might add, by judges primarily appointed by Republican presidents, the Supreme Court found in favor of the plaintiff in the case of Roe v. Wade. This decision, which was technically about confidentiality and privacy laws, was simply the legal backdoor that made abortion on demand legal in every state of our nation. 
They claimed that it would make abortion safe, legal, and rare. But all it did was make it legal. Yes, abortion took place before that date, but Roe v. Wade made it commonplace and acceptable in our culture. And the bloody floodgates were opened. Since then, approximately 64.3 million children have been murdered in the womb legally. 64.3 million. And I say approximately because there aren't precise numbers. The record-keeping is very sloppy and inexact because, hey, it's just an abortion. Who cares, right? And that number, 64.3 million, those are just the clinical abortions that are reported. This does not count the children murdered at home, either by over-the-counter morning-after or Plan B pills, or those killed in the womb by the cocktail of birth control pills published in so many magazines to make sure you don't have to endure the dreadful consequences of caring for a child after sex. Over 64.3 million children killed. What impact does that have on our country? Let's be crass about it for a second. Do you think 64.3 million more taxpayers might have made a difference on whether Social Security was sustainable or not? But it's more than just finances. Every child born since 1973 has lived with the knowledge that they are alive only because someone decided they were worth taking care of, that they could have been killed before their life even began outside of the womb if their parents had simply gone to the doctor. Life has become disposable. Murder is considered health care. Instead of seeing life as a gift from God, children become a commodity. That parents decide when the time is right, how many they will have, and how healthy they will be. Think your baby might have a deformity or be mentally handicapped? Kill it. Try again. Wanted a boy instead of a girl? Same solution. Produce children in a lab, implant them when you feel like you might be ready, and kill the ones that you decide are not worth keeping. Want to have rampant sex but don't want to be tied down as a parent? Don't change your lifestyle. Kill your children. And yes, thankfully, Roe v. Wade has been overturned. And a good number of states are rightly taking a stance against abortion, thanks be to God. But still it continues. And other states are seeking to expand it and promote it even more. Abortion has killed millions and brought about the worst in our society. It has devalued life. It has turned children into possessions. It has made us the deciders of who gets to live and when. It's not a question of reproductive rights, as its proponents like to phrase it. It is a question of life, and we have given the wrongest answer possible. We have made ourselves gods. We have spit upon God's gift of life, and we are a sinful, depraved, murderous society that is even worse than the Ninevites that Jonah was sent to warn. Nineveh was wicked and evil. They were ruthless and brutal, a bloodthirsty city of pagans who lived completely against the word of God, making their own rules and doing whatever pleased them. Nineveh was bad, but were worse. Abortion, immorality, 
Disregard of God's word, divorce, the destruction of the family, lack of social order, godless Marxism being pushed down our children's throats, aggressive oppression and mockery of the Christian faith, the twisting of God's word by Christians to try to fit in with this bloodthirsty, amoral society. We are worse than Nineveh, and God's call to repentance His wrath against our sin, it needs to be taken seriously. The message of Jonah is one that we as a nation need to heed. Repent. And we do. We Americans are very good at repenting the sins of other people. Our secular culture is very happy to repent the sins of others, enforce penance upon them, cancel them. Shout out, shame, shame, to those who do wrong by their book. But that's not repentance. That's self-glorification. As you point out that you're better than they are. That you're woke enough to know how bad that person is. Publicly confessing the sins of the system? That's not repentance. It's simply virtue signaling that you are better than those wretches who still do such detestable things. Our culture loves to repent, but only when it's actually just pointing out the sins of others. Just like we Christians do so often. We too are very quick to point out the sins of society, the sins of our neighbor, the sins of the world. We are great at proclaiming abortion to be sinful, which it is. We are experts at calling sexual promiscuity of every kind evil, which it is. We are very good at repenting of the sins of others. But just like the world around us, that's not repentance. That's just making ourselves feel superior, pointing out that someone is very bad, so we feel not quite so bad. We love to be like Jonah proclaiming to the wicked Ninevites, yet 40 days and you will be overthrown because of your sin. We love to tell others what they need to do in order to be in line with God's word, how evil and wretched those people are. But when Jesus comes to us with his message, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel? Yeah, not so much. Unlike the wicked, evil, destruction-deserving Ninevites who heard the word of God, actually took it to heart, repented, and changed their evil ways, we wicked, evil, destruction-deserving sinners hear the word of God, and we paraphrase the modern-day philosopher Alfred E. Newman, what, me repent? Why would little old me have to repent? Oh, sure, everyone else needs to repent, obviously. Just look at how bad they are. All those wretched sinners out there, yes, they need to repent and change their ways. But me? I've done nothing wrong. I'm better than my neighbor is. I don't spew nearly as much political hatred as they do. Everyone else is doing it, and science has proven it's okay, so clearly I'm within the bounds of our society, and that should count for something. And anything that I'm doing that might technically be a sin? Well, I've got a perfectly valid reason that makes it fine for me, even if it isn't for you. 
my particular circumstances, which are so beyond the scope of human understanding, make it okay to steal. My unique and particular living conditions mean that I just have to live with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I get that it's sinful for everyone else, but for me, oh, I just don't have a choice because I don't actually want to be inconvenienced by my faith, you see. Repenting makes us feel bad. And so we will find any way to justify what we are doing and say that it is just fine. We will try to find the loopholes. We will point out everybody else's sin except for ours. To repent means to admit that you are wrong, that you are not the ultimate authority who knows everything. Repenting means that you are not perfect like you want everyone to think you are. Repenting hurts our feelings, and feelings, as we all know, are the most important thing in the world. Telling others that they have to repent, that makes us feel good. That makes us feel morally superior. That makes us feel like we are doing God's work as we smite those wicked sinners with the hammer of the law. But doing the repenting ourselves, applying that hammer to our own sin, even admitting that we sin, well, that's not really for us, is it? But it needs to be. This was the message of Jesus' ministry. Despite what so many people claim today that Jesus is just about hugs and getting along and everybody being the best that they can, this is in fact the message of the church since the beginning of time. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and need to repent. And we don't like to do that because repenting hurts our feelings. At least, that's what we think repentance does. And there's the catch. When we hear repent, we focus on the law, on the confession, on the admission of guilt. We think of the sackcloth and ashes, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. We think that it involves making a rock-solid promise that we will never, ever, 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 ever do it again. And since we know that that is really not very realistic, and because we really like some of our sin and look forward to the next time we're going to do it, we don't want to be hypocritical, and so we just decide repentance isn't our thing. We want to avoid the discomfort of repentance, and so we too often just get comfortable with our sin explain it away, self-justify, point out other people are far worse than us, so we really don't need all that repentance right now. Thank you very much. But you see, repenting isn't just about feeling bad about sin and promising to never do it again. Repentance is about trusting God. Trusting that His ways are better than ours, Trusting that he knows better than we do. Trusting that he actually has our best interest in mind when he tells us, thou shalt not. Most importantly, though, repentance is trusting that when we repent in faith and contrition, God will forgive us. Repenting might hurt our feelings for a time, but what repentance does, true repentance, is it brings about the greatest joy because of God's grace. Look what happened to Nineveh when they repented. 
God relented of the destruction that he said would come upon them, the destruction that they absolutely deserved, and the city was spared. Look what happened to St. Paul when he repented of his persecution of the church. He was blessed to know the joy of Jesus Christ and the freedom of the gospel. Look what happened to the sinful woman at the well, to Nicodemus, to Zacchaeus, to the apostles, to the repentant thief on the cross. All of them repented of their sin and looked to Jesus Christ in faith. All of them were granted peace and joy that they did not have before, that this world cannot give. Look what happens to you when you repent in real faith and contrition. Yes, it hurts your feelings and your ego to genuinely examine your life and confess how much sin you actually commit. Yes, it tarnishes that image of morality and perfection that you try to convey to the world. But when God's word convicts you of your sin, calls you to repentance, you have two options. Number one, ignore it. Kick and cry and scream that it's unfair, that it doesn't apply to you, and keep on living in the sin that enslaves and endangers you, spending all your time and energy trying to hide it or justify it. Or, number two, lay that staggering burden of sin down at the foot of the cross. Turn away from it by the power of the Holy Spirit and be completely free of it. Not in that you'll never do it again if you repent well enough or if your faith is actually genuine. As long as you are this side of heaven, you will struggle with sin. And some sin will demand more of a struggle than others. Some sin you will struggle with until your dying breath. But let God's word change your life. Admit that you are by nature sinful and unclean and be set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not free to live in as much sin as you like. That's just pretending that your slavery to the devil is freedom. But genuinely, fully free from all the eternal consequences of your sin. Through repentance, true repentance, repentance in faith, we have redemption, forgiveness, and eternal peace. In the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ, Your sins are forgiven. They are removed from you as far as the east is from the west. They are wiped out of the Lord's record book as if they never happened. Every sin that you confess in faith, even the ones that you don't know that you've done, every sin is paid for in full by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you repent, when you hear God's word and truly acknowledge your sin, You are not condemned as you deserve, but you are cleansed completely. You are proclaimed holy, innocent, and righteous in the eyes of God, and you are welcomed into the eternal, sinless paradise of heaven. Would you throw that away in order to hold on to your wretched sin that brings so much pain and sorrow into your life? Would you reject God's love and refuse to put aside the ways of the world? Would you continue to fight? Would you continue to blindly follow the devil and listen to his empty promises of pleasure and joy as he fills your life with more shame and suffering and insatiable addiction to sin while leading you to hell? Jesus Christ, God Himself, 
came to us in the flesh. Not just to lay down the law, not just to tell us, be better, quit your sinning, repent, and be a good person. He came to take away your guilt. He suffered and died in your place to take away all of your sin. He rose again from the grave to open the gates of heaven for all believers, all those who look to him in faith, all who trust in his word of forgiveness and salvation. He ascended into heaven to continually intercede for us wicked sinners who deserve only his hand of wrath, but instead are given his hand of protection and grace and mercy. And he will return again in glory to put an end to all sin and suffering and death. And when he does, he will take us to be with him in his eternal paradise forever. What do we have to do to receive those benefits? There's no paperwork, no qualifications to fulfill, no 90-day waiting period, not even a requirement to fully get your life in shape and quit your wretched sinning. Believe in Christ Jesus. Repent of your sin, and his eternal gift of redemption is yours. Acknowledge genuinely that you are a sinner, and you are no longer a sinner. Confess your sins in faith and contrition, and your sin is removed from you completely. Do this, not so that you can sin more and just live a consequence-free life. That's not real repentance. That's just more slavery to sin. Hear God's word with joy, even when it convicts you of your sin, and take it to heart. Trust that God's ways are better than yours, than the world's. Strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to live by those ways. Trust that he is your heavenly father who cares about you, who loves you more than you could ever know, who wants only what is best for you. And above all, trust that just as God promises, when you repent in faith, you freely receive the eternal gifts of forgiveness life, and salvation. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. For by the cross of Jesus Christ alone, by his empty tomb alone, you are forgiven of every one of your sins, and eternal life in heaven is yours. Thanks be to God. Amen.